Well, um, suffering is our theme here, and suffering is a, is a very present um, and real reality to each of us. Um, all of you have been touched by suffering today to some extent, right? Some, maybe physically or emotionally, personally, corporately, even on a, a global scale, we could say we're suffering as humanity uh, through this uh, pandemic surge. Some of you are fighting cancer. Others of, you, others of you have loved ones who are fighting cancer. Some of you have suffered with the COVID-19. Some have loved ones who have suffered, even died through all of this. It seems that 2020 almost has a theme of suffering uh, throughout it. Um, add to all of this, on top of all of this, that the suffering of 2020 for us is not necessarily new for people, many around the world, especially followers of Jesus who are still being persecuted and dying for their faith every single year throughout the world. And yet as we approach Christmas, I am happy and glad to celebrate with you the fact that we have a God, now think about this, who is not immune to suffering. He's not immune to it. It's not a, a dictionary definition for him, right? He has felt it. He's lived among us. He knows what it's like. He didn't stand back uh, and distance himself from humanity, distance himself from suffering. As a matter of fact, as we, as we read the Bible, we find in Isaiah that he was going to be called a man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief, no grief personally. So we read this gospel of Matthew we've been looking at. We find that Matthew uh, tells us that Jesus was surrounded by suffering. And actually, he, he deliberately would go towards suffering. He, he almost like he was bent towards it, drew him. We deliberately sought them out, not just those who suffered physically, but even those who were outcast, those who were marginalized, those who were isolated and alone. You know, one of the hardest things probably this year, I was reading an article last night about, you know, 2020 is not just all the physical stuff, it's the emotional side of just being alone and being isolated, not being able to go to the places and be with people as you normally are able to do. And yet Jesus went to those people. He ministered to those people. The entire gospel of Matthew is marked by suffering. And Matthew's gospel has already highlighted a significant amount of this. Uh, I think if you go all the way back to the very beginning, we think about the Christmas story, the beginning of Matthew, we find that the opening chapters, we have Joseph and we have Mary, who have to flee with Jesus, right, to Egypt to escape a mass murderer, crazy guy named Herod. They had to endure the, the gossip and the rumors that their relationship was, uh, was, was, was not right. They, they, then you see, the, as, a, as the uh, gospel moves on, we find... Um, Jesus alone and hungry in the wilderness with Satan tempting him, taking his best shots at him. You move on to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, and we find that he marks and talks about how suffering is going to be real. One of the ones here, Matthew 5, verse 10 and 11, says the following. These are part of the Beatitudes or the opening of that sermon, and this is the, kind of the pinnacle of it. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And as, a, as it moves on, he begins to challenge his followers to really count the cost. Listen to what he says in chapter 8. Jesus uh, has a situation here. A scribe comes, comes up to him and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. He's telling us it, it, it's going to be difficult following him. It's going to be hard. And then as he sends his disciples out on kind of like their first mission trip, as it were, in chapter 10, he explains to them how they may be treated and will be treated 
Matthew 10 tells us this. Behold, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, drag you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear, bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Add to all of this, Jesus' own personal situation, right? He's been already run out of his hometown of Nazareth by his own family, his own friends, as Matthew, as Gospel of John will tell us, his own brothers didn't believe in him. And, and right, right before this happened, back in chapter 14, if you look at earlier in the chapter, the very beginning of it, we find that John the Baptist has his head served up a la carte, right? I mean, he is, he is killed for his, his following, his commitment to Jesus. And it just gets more intense as the gospel moves on. In our text this morning, we find Jesus, strangely enough, um, sending his disciples right into the face of, we would call, suffering, into difficulty. Um, and after all they have gone through in following Jesus, they are at this moment in, in this story, no doubt emotionally, we would say maybe fragile. And yet Jesus is going to push them some more. You ever feel that way? Feel like you can't take another wave, another round, another something, right? You've already kind of getting pushed to the brink, and yet God brings something else, put something else on your plate, and you're like, it's just too much for me to handle. That's kind of where they are. That's how the disciples felt. And he's going to do this deliberately, and in doing so, he's going to reveal more of himself to them, knowing that that, though that might what they wanted is what they really needed. He illustrated this already, this story in chapter 14, Pastor Eddie preached here of Jesus feeding the 5,000, probably closer, maybe the 15,000 total people when you add the women and children in. Um, he illustrated this, this miraculously, that, that he is what people need by feeding the 5,000 while everyone sat comfortably on the grass with clear skies, joy in their hearts. It was a wonderful story. But now he is going to bring home that truth on a sea that a storm hits in the cover of night with fear in their hearts. Realize this, that much is revealed about God and genuine faith is tested most in times of suffering and hardship. It's not God torturing you. It's not God being mean to you. It's not God being cruel. It's God revealing more of himself to you and that's what he's gonna do with the disciples in our story. If you look at verse 22, it says this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat Go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Okay, so there's our situation. Being God, Jesus knew, okay, as we already read, he knew the storm was coming. That wasn't shocking to him. He knew the storm would rage. He knew that they were very tired men who no doubt were already set on edge. You could probably imagine them in the situation and go, based on all that's happened in the first kind of 13, 14 chapters here that I imagine them, if it was modern day here, okay, this is my imagination. Right? They're walking down to the shoreline even says in the text, Jesus made them get in the boat. <laughs> the idea is they were, they were reluctant to do so. You know, they're, they're, they're tired. They got a Red Bull in their hand, right? They're carrying their leftover fish and, you know, and, and bread and their little lunch pails, getting into the boat, their heads dragging, right? The shoulders are slouched, you know, feet dragging on the shoreline. All right, I guess we got to get in this boat. And as they get in the boat and they're kind of pushed offshore by Jesus, he's not going with them. He just pushes them off. I mean, adios, you know, see you guys. I'll see you on the other side. And they're just kind of being pushed around. And in my mind, I imagine kind of like a, a Michael Scott kind of meme here. I imagine their face, kind of this deadpan look of, seriously, guys, seriously, Jesus, this is where we're going. This is where you're sending us across and we're so exhausted. And you're not going with us. And so he doesn't. There was something he wanted to teach these men, right? He was something he wanted to teach them. And, and as he pushes them off uh, to the shoreline, 
Mark even talks about that, that they hadn't picked up on something. This is a very important little insight. And then Mark is another one of these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they, they give some insights on these stories. And Mark tells us this, Mark 6, 52, they, speaking of the disciples, did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's interesting. As they get into the boats, they had just fed all these people. Jesus had multiplied the bread and fish and all this stuff had happened. And yet as they get into the boat, they didn't understand. There was something they didn't get, okay? What possibly did Jesus want to teach them that they didn't pick up on when he, that he miraculously just did with feeding the 15,000 people? And it's this. It's not, they need to understand, it's, he was not just a miracle worker. Jesus is not just a, a prophet. He's not just someone who's fulfilling passages in a prophecy in the Old Testament, he, and he's not, as the crowds thought, the guy who has come to kind of KO the Romans and knock them out and establish a physical kingdom for Israel. That is not what he's trying to teach them. He is trying to tell them, guys, that he is God Almighty. And he's going to make this very clear in this passage. He is God. He is God. The one who creates and rules over the entire universe. He can make fish and bread appear out of nowhere. He can make winds and seas obey him. Disciples, like many people in our world and in our culture, then and even today, had what uh, Johnny Cash called their own personal Jesus, okay? <laughs> had their own personal Jesus, someone they have kind of created in their own making, someone that fits into their back pocket, someone who they can call on when, you know, can take the wheel when necessary, because, I mean, otherwise I got this, but I'll really call on you when I really need you kind of thing, right? So an entity may be present for immediate needs, someone to use for personal or even political gains, but Jesus doesn't fit in your back pocket. He's not someone you can just pull out and use whenever you need him, right? He is God Almighty. He's controlling your very breath. And Jesus wants to show them that the the kingdom of God and the kind of king he is, and he's gonna do it in the context of struggle, suffering, and uncertainty. Because as I said before, that's where he teaches his greatest lessons. We don't like them. We don't like to go through them, but that's that's where they hit home. That's where all those truths you've learned and things you understand really start to kind of solidify in your soul when you go through those. They need Jesus more than they know. And my friends, we need Jesus more than we know. And here's the other thing. He, he many times reveals his glory, not just in the context of suffering, but at the point and the places where we perceive to be most sufficient, right? The places we perceive to be, all right, I don't need Jesus in this area. I'm good, I'm good. I'm good over here. I really need him over here. But this one, I got this one, right? And what is the situation that these guys are going to be in? They're in a boat. What are most of the disciples? Fishermen. <laughs> if there was anything that they knew how to do, it was, it was to sail a boat, okay? They, they knew how to do this. They've been on this sea many times. They'd faced many different storms many different times. They knew all about this. But it was here in the midst of what they thought they were sufficient in He's going to test them, and their pride is going to be crushed because it's only in humility that they see the greatness and the grace of Jesus Christ. So in the story, we're going to see how in the midst of the storms of life, Jesus both sees us, comes to us, and rescues us. Okay, that's our three points today. And I can't think of a better kind of passage understanding to get as we close out 2020, okay, to understand this. Jesus sees us, he comes to us, he rescues us. All right, number one, Jesus sees us. Down in verse 22, immediately, he made disciples get into the boat. Okay, he forced them. Literally, the, the command, the, the word means to compel by force and persuasion. <laughs> they're, they're fighting Jesus on this one. We don't want to go in the boat, right? 
So he, he, he says he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So to the reluctance of the disciples, Jesus commands them to get into the boat. And so they, they gather into the boat, and Jesus sends them off, and he goes back to dismiss those crowds. Okay, the previous story was all these like 15,000 people in this field kind of area, valley area, and he's sending them back home. They, uh, they now have their hunger for food satisfied, but as we'll find out, they were salivating at the idea of making Jesus their king to stop, stomp out the Romans. So Jesus sends them away with their kind of foolhardy ambitions, and he finally gets to take a break to commune with the Father alone on a mountain. So I imagine, if we, if we could bring this to uh, 2020 here, I almost said 2021, it's almost there. Um, 2020 kind of idea here. Imagine we had a drone for this story, okay? You've seen a drone, right? Flies over. I just want to like get an aerial view of what's always happening in the story. And, and so we can see Jesus, right? He's hiking up the mountain. It's dusk. Okay, he's there alone. He's kind of, we see him kind of hiking up the mountain. The drone turns at the base of the mountain. We see the crowds slowly dispersing around the Sea of Galilee, and they're kind of going back to their villages and to their homes. And as it, as it kind of pans out and moves across the water, the drone, we begin to see the poor disciples. They're out there in the water, rowing. Uh, they're like whimpering puppies out there in the middle of the water, floating and, and rowing away across the water. The sea, it says a sea of Galilee, like, what, is it like an ocean? It's not an ocean, it's like a really big lake maybe. It, uh, it was a 14 miles long and nine miles wide. It was also, based on where it was located, was situated 600 feet below sea level. Okay, that causes some serious you know, storms to come. What would happen in the, that area, the surrounding valleys would pull kind of the cool Mediterranean air from the west every afternoon which collided with the, the heated desert air of the basin, creating strong storms, frequent big storms. I lived in Mobile, Alabama for, for a while, for a couple years, and it would, every afternoon, 3 o'clock, it felt like, big, massive storm coming through, just pile up and come right through. And that's kind of what it was like here. It was like every afternoon, evening, this would happen. And so at first, this boat ride was pretty smooth for the disciples, but things could change at a drop of a hat, and it did. Imagine, again, we're kind of recording this, the drone flying over top, and you can almost feel the cold, damp air. You can hear the silence of the exhausted disciples as they quietly kind of grunt and row the oars, small waves kind of slapping the side of the boat. And there's not much talk, right? They're, but running through their minds are all kinds of thoughts, no doubt, of why Jesus would send them across the lake, across the sea, by themselves, Everything we have read so far in the Gospel of Matthew, they've been together. Pretty much everywhere Jesus went, they were right there with him, and yet they are alone. And as they embark on this journey across the Sea of Galilee, we can tell by the previous story of the feeding of the 5,000 that it was, again, it was dusk, the sun is setting. Matthew tells us in verse 25 that it was the fourth watch of the night. That makes about 3 to 6 a.m., okay? So it's, it's late before Jesus came to them on the water. So they left at around 7, storm doesn't hit till 3, okay? So you do the math on that one. They've been rowing for about 8 hours or so. That's a long time to row a boat, okay? 8 hours are just rowing across the Sea of Galilee. They had a lot of soul-searching time out there on the sea, not to mention the time that no doubt they were mourning, they were grieving over John the Baptist, who they knew, who just died. They're probably thinking about what that meant for them, right? If he died, then that may, we may be next, right? All these thoughts going through their head, um, needless to say, again, they're, they're, not, 
They're not happy campers, which as I always say is pretty much the truth of all campers, not happy, right? Um, <laughs> should be, in my opinion. But, um, but they're not happy campers, right? I mean, they're, they're mourning, they're hurt, they're scared, they're tired, they're exhausted, right? All of the emotions you can imagine. You've been in that moment, you had little kids, you've been up all night, you know, and they're up for another feeding. I remember this when mine were really little, you're just like, you don't even remember what happened, right? You just, hopefully they stayed alive, right? You're just, you're so tired, you're so exhausted, and that's what's going on. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way away from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, after eight hours, we find a storm kick up, and it's a doozy. It's probably at 3 a.m. about this time, and they've been up all night long. Remember, they were already exhausted, okay, before, before these hours of rowing. They just got through with a mission trip in the previous chapters. Um, they, were, they were just about to relax, chapter 14, they were about to relax, get a bite to eat themselves when all these people show up. And they, remember the disciples, Pastor Eddie taught this, and the disciples were like, can you just go tell them to get something to eat? And Jesus says, what? No, you feed them. And they're like, man, we're, we just want to eat. We're, like, we're so tired. Like, we just want a bite to eat here. And he says, feed them. And so they spend, all, they get a lot of steps in, right? Feeding 15,000 people because the text says they fed them. So they, they sat down. The disciples walked around with these baskets. I mean, they are exhausted. They, haven't, they probably haven't eaten at all uh, because of how busy they've been. So here they are. Again, hungry, tired, cranky, you know, hangry, whatever. They're all that. Uh, and they're fishermen. Knowing their temperaments, knowing what we read about in the other Gospels, I imagine um, that they may have been probably yelling at each other <laughs> when the storm hit, uh, telling each other to pull their own weight, right? One of them is trying to sneak in some food because they're, they're trying to eat, you know. Um, I don't know, maybe James is trying to sneak in one of those fish tacos, you know, and he's trying to eat, and they're all upset at him. And you can see Peter, he's kind of like, I imagine Peter because he's always the one that kind of leads and speaks for the group, doing his best kind of George Washington impersonation, right, crossing the... Uh, the Delaware there, I imagine holding the rope. That's what, I don't know, that's, that's what comes to my mind, that there they are right there without the American flag. Not the same, okay? Um, but, uh, but they're rowing across, you know, and they're trying to get there. You know, Peter's up front like, row harder, guys. You know, the foam is in his beard and all of that. And, uh, and, and so they, they're, they're going nowhere fast. Matter of fact, Matthew tells us they were a long way from land. So they're probably about four or five miles from their destination. They may have gone about nine, Okay, so they got four or five miles left, and they can see no land, right? It's dark. They can't see land. They're not even close to it. Their boat is literally, the word is tormented. It's very interesting. Their boat is tormented by the waves. Same word used to describe people who in the Gospel of Matthew were, when Jesus would cast out demons because they were tormented by demons, same language used for the storm. It gives you an idea. This is, this is like a hurricane proportion storm here. It's very big. And so they're, they're going nowhere fast. They see no land. They're barely moving forward. Mark even adds this comment, Mark 6, 48. They were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, right? So they're, they're just, they're rowing, but going nowhere. And I wonder what they were thinking, right? I imagine things like, where is Jesus, right? Is that something you would be, really, this is how this is going to go down? Like, all this time, we're going to die in the middle of the storm. Doesn't he care about us? You know, if he was here the storm wouldn't have come, right? Why did he send us out here alone? Didn't he know we were exhausted? After all we've done for him, is he, is he gonna leave us out here to die? Right? Sound familiar? These are thoughts that go through our heads when things like this happen. And this is what Mark says about Jesus. Mark 6, 46. Listen, read, listen to this carefully. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. That's like Matthew here. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land, 
and he saw them. You know, let's read that and go, what? <laughs> disciples, right? I mean, disciples no doubt felt alone, okay? But the fact was, they weren't alone. Jesus saw them. You say, how did he see them? When they're at least five miles, maybe nine miles out, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, and he's on top of a mountain? It's a great question. That's what I I ask. Wait a minute, how did he see them? (laughs) How did he see them? Jesus saw them because, as we said earlier, he knows, he sees everything. He is God. Remember the beginning of the Gospel of John? Nathaniel was overwhelmed, right? Remember, he was going to meet Jesus, and Jesus already knew him. He said, I saw you under that fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, Wait a minute, how did you see me under that fig tree? You weren't even close, right? Same idea. Um, this is the doctrine we call the imminence of God. Sometimes you can refer to it as the omnipresence of God. It means God is here. And we, we can say, it's true, that God is everywhere, and that is right, but it's far more personal for us to say that Jesus is where we are. He is here, wherever you and I may be. Matter of fact, he never leaves here. Think about that. In your future, here. Past, here. Present, here. It's not there, not over there. Sometimes here, sometimes there. He's here, always. He's at your home. He's at your work. He's at your school. My friends, and, and just to get really personal in our current situations, he's at that nursing home right now that you can't visit your loved one at. He's at that hospital bed that you can't go visit and you feel like your, your loved one's all alone. I, and I... I know Christy's watching. Christy, JP is not alone in that bed right now, okay? He's there. He's not alone. Jesus is there. He's here, (laughs) wherever that may be. In the midst of the loneliness and the isolation, he's here. Listen, Psalm 139, 7 through 12, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and light about me be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, Am I, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? In our own gospel of Matthew chapter 10 29 through 30, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And as the gospel of Matthew ends, it ends on this theme, doesn't it? Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And don't forget the very last verse of this gospel. And behold, I am what? I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm with you. I won't just be there when you get there. I'm with you right now. Now, that's how the gospel of Matthew ends. When you have Jesus, my friends, you're never, you're never alone. He promises he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is the indestructible Jesus who while sin and death and hell and Satan himself tried to keep him in the grave, he busted out and he conquered it. He's always here, my friends, because he's alive. But you may say, you may think, I thought that's right. That's all well and good. And I appreciate that truth that he's alive, but... Why did he put the disciples and us in situations like this? <laughs> Why does he seem to always come in at the last minute, step in, swoop in the, when things seem so bleak? What is he waiting for? Jesus' timing is perfect, even if we don't feel that is the case. 
He does want us to wait on him because he has a greater purpose and good in what he's doing. He wants us to see his glory. And we'll look at this in the following couple weeks here in Matthew 17. He wants us to see him, which is the best thing for us. And it usually doesn't get revealed in comfort. Think about this in the stories of the Old Testament. If Abraham would have been told what would happen in the land of Canaan, he probably never would have gone. But it was there he was he became the father of Israel. If Joseph would have been delivered out of the pit by his brothers and brought back to his family, all of Israel would have died in the famine. If Jesus hadn't gone through suffering and death on the cross, we would all have a one-way ticket to hell, right? I mean, we had to go through it. He had to go through it. Many times Jesus waits to help because he wants to show something greater about himself. He loves us, even though he brings suffering. In that suffering, he sees and knows what he is doing. He knows what we can handle by his grace. In Gospel of John, there was a situation where this Lazarus guy dies. And Jesus hears about it. And Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved his, the sisters as well. And here's a story, says in John 11, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He's sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately went to him. That's not what it says. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He waited for him to die. It doesn't make any sense to him. He loved them, and yet he waited for Why? Because he wanted to reveal something about himself. It's like the prayer that Jesus would pray. John 17, 24, he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to do what? To see my glory that you've given me because you love me for the foundation of the world. Listen, I don't know where you are right now. But like I said, it's been, a, it's been a pretty rough year, okay? But I want you to know that Jesus sees you. He knows all about your situation, even your suffering. He loves you. As a matter of fact, he's even ordained every detail. He knows exactly what you can and cannot handle by his grace. He's gonna show his glory, but we must wait for him in that. Number two, Jesus arrives. Verse 25 says, the fourth watch of the night he came. Fourth watch, so it's been a couple of watches, Okay. He waits, fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said to the ghost, and they cried in fear. So Jesus waits until things are almost impossible here. They have been going about this for about 10 hours now. No doubt they are ready to give up and die. They're in the middle of the sea, in the thick of it all. It's too far to turn back now. It's too far to go forward. I mean, they really are stuck. And I'm sure some of the disciples are thinking, you know, let's just go with the wind, just take it wherever it takes us, and we'll just die here. <laughs> all of a sudden... As they're doing this, and maybe they're in a point of despair, all of a sudden, you can imagine kind of what's happening in the scene. Moonlight kind of flickers off of a wave, and they caught a glimpse of something that seemed unusual, something they hadn't seen. Was that a, was that a person out there in the water? <laughs> maybe they started to count each other and think, did someone go overboard? <laughs> like, who's out there? What's, what's going on? Uh, maybe they start, you know, chuck the life preserver kind of idea. So the, the figure, though, begins to get closer, and they become afraid He's hidden for a moment in a valley of water, and now he's striding on top of a huge swell. Just kind of goes up and down, walking on top of these massive waves. All the time, coming closer and closer and closer. And they conclude, logically, it must be a ghost, right? Because, of course, it was a ghost, right? That makes perfect sense. I mean, Jesus hasn't done anything miraculous to give you an idea that could possibly maybe be him. Um, comically, Mark even records that Jesus, it says here, Mark 6:48, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when he saw them walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. <laughs> I 
I guess he, was, he told me to meet him on the other side. He just, this is his means of transportation, I guess, taking a stroll across the water. I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't walk around. I'd walk over too, right? He meant to pass by. Oh, hold on, guys. There you are. Um, and so I imagine them seeing Jesus, kind of just waves at him. That didn't comfort them at all, actually. The language indicates that they were terrified. They didn't think he could help them, apparently. So verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus immediately turns to the disciples, like a mother to her children's cry. And he literally just says to them, and I love the language, it doesn't, it doesn't come out in the English or the ESV version. I'm going to give you, I don't normally do this to you, but I'm going to throw the Greek, Greek word at you, okay? The original language, lego emi. That phrase, all it is, is I am. That's what he says to them. He doesn't say it is I, he says I am. That's the first words that come out of his mouth, first word in the language. What is that? It's the same language he used in John 8, 8.58, when he said, before Abraham was, what? I am. You know what happened? The religious leaders, they tried to kill him because they knew exactly what he was saying. Uh, in John 18, 6, when the guards arrested him in the, in the garden, and they asked if, hey, are you Jesus? And he said, let go of me, I am. And the passage says they all fell over. <laughs> they just fell to the ground in just, just in the presence of him. It's the same language used in Exodus chapter 3. The same language that was used to describe when Moses asked at the burning bush, if you remember this story, who, what's your name? What am I going to tell them? What is your name? What do I tell them your name is? And what did, what did God say? Lego me. I am. Tell them I am. Jesus, in the storm, in the midst of the chaos, looks at the disciples, immediately turns to them and says, Lego me. I am. You know what he was saying? It's exactly what he was saying. He, he told them not to be afraid because he was God and he was here. He created the sea, he created the waves, he created the wind, he created the boat. That's why he could walk across it. You say, so why are they afraid then? I mean, didn't, didn't they just see Jesus perform one of the greatest miracles ever with this bread and fish multiplying it? They even, they've seen him heal the blind, the sick, the lame. They've seen him cast out demons. They have even seen him uh, calm a storm, very similar to this one about a, a, before. It's, a, it's not the first time this has happened. Didn't, didn't they realize that when he's present, he's here, he's got them, he's what they need. You see, the disciples are, are comfortable with Jesus on the grass at dusk, and they marveled at his glory there. But here, it's a different story. They're, unfraid, they're afraid, they're unsure. If Jesus is really who he says he is in the storm, it's gotten very personal now. It's gotten very real, because this is something that they should be able to handle. They need to know that he is, I am. The only way to overcome fear is to be confident in his presence and his love for you. But you say, you don't understand, Chris. I have failed to believe over and over. I am in a storm right now, and I don't know if I can hang on. I doubt that he even cares for me at all. I think I've burnt my bridges with God kind of thing. Listen to this, Psalm 103. He, speaking of God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is a steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So despite the lack of faith, he still acted on the disciples' behalf. He'll always love and care for his children despite their wavering faith. In many ways, our, our struggle only endears the heart of God toward us. Isn't that crazy? Like the struggle, the, the fight, the wrestling with it only endears the heart of God towards us. It makes him even closer 
I love how Charles Spurgeon was a pastor over in London back in the 1800s. He said this, Do not mothers always care most for the tiniest child or for that one which is most sick? Do we not spend the greatest care upon that one of our children which has the least use of its limbs? Or is, not true, is it not true that our weakness holds God's strength and leads him to bow his omnipotence to our rescue? It lends the heart of God. Jesus is acting on your behalf right now. He's not passive God, he's an active God. He will bring you to the point of despair. Yes, that will happen. And he'll walk out on the water too. Lastly, number three, Jesus rescues. Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, it's you, command me to come out in the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. But the text says in verse 30, he, he saw the wind, he was afraid, began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So here we, we find Peter, usual Peter here, right? Bold Peter, as usual. The other disciples are trying to figure out what he's thinking. Right? <laughs> he, he, out of all the disciples, decides that, well, if Jesus is walking on the water, then Obviously, he should give me the power to do the same thing. He was really, kind of really starting to get it here, right? And I don't think Peter was trying to show up the other disciples, like, look what I can do kind of thing. But if he was, it is kind of comical that he sinks at some point here. I believe, I believe Peter just wanted to be near Jesus. I really do. Being near God was the desire of every God-fearing person in the Bible. God was called the summum bonum, the highest good. The temple, people would crowd around the temple to get close to the presence of God. That's how they understood to get close to the presence of God. And Jesus is saying, you don't need a temple, a sacrifice, an offering to be near the great I am. There are no barriers to cross. There's no curtains to pull down. There's no trepidation to enter to be near God. He, he has come to us. That's what Christmas is about. He's come to us Peter was afraid, and like a child, he wants to run into his parents' arms. That's kind of what's going on here. Can you imagine that first step out of the boat? <laughs> I'm, I, my mind goes to Indiana Jones, right? Remember the, the leap of faith or the step of faith where he has to kind of step out and can't see the bridge? That's what I imagine going on here. Once he gets kind of both feet on the water, he kind of exudes with excitement. The disciples are no doubt wide-eyed you know, and awestruck about what's happening here. And all the fear kind of started to subside among all of them as they looked at Jesus. Peter even begins to forget maybe all the situation as he focused on Jesus. Maybe he started recalling all the incidences of what Jesus had done and miracles he had done. And so Peter, like a toddler, taking his first steps, is out there you know, walking to Jesus. But then kind of a strong gale picks up, right? And waves begin to slap maybe at his knees and maybe up to his waist, you know, he begins to lose his balance from the strong wind. He looks around him. He wakes up, as it were, from a dream, and he realizes he's on top of the water. What am I doing? <laughs> this was not a good idea. You know, all these things going through his head. He, he takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to, to be anxious and worry about what's going on around him. Fear just kind of just rushes back over him like a tidal wave. His arms begin to frail and cried out for Jesus to save him. But like all of us, even in our attempts of faith and drawing near to God, we, we see the circumstances around us, the, the pressures of the world, the expectations of what life should be like, and we stumble in our pursuit. And I love that as Peter sinks, Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You got yourself out here. You figure it out. You know how to swim, don't you? Start swimming, kid. Let's go. <laughs> Get back to the boat. He didn't do that. Jesus literally stretched out his hand. 
and grabbed Peter. And you can hear, I imagine, the, the, the disciples in the boat, you know, they're like starting to cheer like, well, this is, this is great. You know, they're cheering over there. They, they've been walking almost vicariously with Peter across the water, get, like getting sucked into a good movie. And Jesus, and Jesus then walks with Peter to the boat, gets in, and the text says the storm immediately stopped. As soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, just went away. Went away. And there's a lot of application here. Maybe you are not a follower of Jesus today. Maybe you're here seeking truth. Maybe, the, maybe you're here interested in the claims of Christianity. Maybe 2020 has had its toll and you're going like, I don't know what is real, true, or not, okay? Well, we're glad, we're glad you're here for that, okay? If you know, if, if that's you, if so, know what Peter's, Peter's prayer is, the simplest and most profound prayer you could ever pray. Lord, help me. Lord, de- deliver me from my bondage of sin. I am drowning in a sea of despair. Bring me into a relationship with you, right? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you feel like you're drowning in the sea of this world, the world, the flesh, the devil, all is pressing on you, sending swell after swell of water, right? You know temptations, you feel the temptations of money and sex and power and fame and applause. They're all knocking at your door. They are relentless, but I can assure you that your Savior is more relentless than they are. Sometimes you'll be walking on water, Sometimes you'll be sinking, but Jesus is still that great rescuer. Look at verse 32. He got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And I love John's account of the story. In the Gospel of John, says, and they were immediately on shore. There's another one of those parts. Like Jesus saw him from the mountain, and immediately they were on shore. They were a good five miles away at least. There were, there were really four miracles in this, this whole story. Jesus walking on water, Peter on water, the storm stopping immediately, and them arriving on shore immediately. I want you to know that what ended up happening here is Jesus did bring them to their destination. They got to where he said they would go. It was hard and it was difficult, but he got to where he said they were going to go. And Jesus brought them to their destination. He is going to take you through storms to get you to where he wants you, and you can't bypass the storm. And ultimately, he's going to take you to be with him forever. The Bible continues to go and continues to tell the story that there will be a new earth coming one day with Jesus ruling over every bit of it. And his ultimate goal in all of this and in all the suffering is to reveal his glory. This story is not given to us to promise that our suffering won't lead to death. That's not the point of the story. But it is the point of the fact that death is not the last word. Jesus will take us to the destination he has promised. Because Jesus saw our plight, stuck in our sin with no way of escape, he took on human flesh. He was born, he lived, he died for us. He not only walked on water, my friends, he walked on earth for 33 years as a perfect human being, fulfilling every law, fulfilling every command for you and me. And he didn't just see us and draw near to us. He rescued us by walking all over death too. This rescue operation that Jesus was in involved outstretched hands like he did to Peter, except these hands would ultimately be pierced to a, to a cross. And instead of walking on water, he'd be suspended in the air by three nails. And instead of ruling over the elements that he created like the winds and the seas, he submitted himself even to the point of death, all so that you could be rescued. And the fact is, of that ultimate rescue enables us to have faith and hold on in times of suffering and even death. It allows us to help endure knowing that there is a promised destination. We can endure the sufferings currently because of what Jesus has done and what he promises for us in the future. Charles Simeon was a pastor uh, at a place called Trinity Church in England back in 1782. 
He was appointed there by this nomination to be the pastor over this congregation at age 23. And he stayed there for 54 years. The problem, though, you say, oh, that's great. Uh, the problem was that the church wanted another pastor to be their pastor, not the one the denomination appointed. And so they gave the Sunday morning pulpit to another guy for five years. So he had to sit there and watch. <laughs> after he left, that guy left. You think, okay, after five years, Simeon's in. They brought in somebody else. For seven more years, he was not allowed to be there. And since they wanted nothing to do with him, Simeon decided, okay, I'm going I'm to still be at this church because I've been appointed here, but I'm going to go work with those who don't want to come to church. So he was working out with the marginalized. He was working out outside with the, with the people who were unchurched and go. He started working with them, reaching them. They started coming to Christ. He started a Sunday night service in the building. And yet the church locked him out. <laughs> the members wouldn't let him in. They locked the keys and kept the keys and locked it. And when he was finally let in on Sunday mornings, bringing these new people with him, and the members didn't want these new people with him, he would, he would come in and they would, they would lock their pews. Back then, they actually had pews and they were locked and he rented them. And that's how they worked. And they had keys. They had their own keys. They locked them out. So then he would come in on Saturday night and he would fill the rows in the, in the aisles with chairs. By the time he came in on Sunday morning, the members had come in and tossed them out into the courtyard. So he had no chairs. They so had to sit on the floor for this, right? This is what he did. Many times as he preached on those Sunday mornings, uh, after this time, he would have the college students in town would go by and they'd chuck rocks through the window, mock him. A lot of them were members' kids <laughs> who didn't want doing what he was doing. He did all that. He stayed there for 54 years. 54 years he did this. On his 49th year, uh, a friend asked him a question. They said, how... How did he surmount all this? How did he outlast it? How did he endure all the persecution, the prejudices against him um, in his many years of ministry? And here's, here's his comment. This is really good. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, speaking of Jesus, has surmounted all of his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Our current suffering is but a prickling of the legs, right? It hurts. It's real. It, it, it feels painful, and it is. But ultimately, my friends, Jesus has endured the ultimate for us. He has gone through the hedge. The head has gone through. We will be brought through to our destination. As we, as we go to communion, um, Take the opportunity and the quiet now, if you're new with us, we can have a little bit of quiet time here. I'll stop talking and we'll just have some silence. There's, a little, there's cups in front of you there, or if I, I didn't even ask if they're there, I assume they are. <laughs> I've been out a little bit. And you take the cups and there's bread and there's juice, all right? And, and as you look at that, the point here is to take an opportunity. If you're a follower of Christ today, is to take this time right now. It's been a rough year. Christmas is upcoming, okay? There's always hope in Christ, and I want you to take the moment here to, to pause and lay your burdens down before God. First um, Peter tells us that uh, to cast all of our cares upon him because he what? He cares for us. Do you, do you believe that? He does. So cast it down. Frustrations, the anger you may feel, the bitterness you may feel, the frustrations, the sorrow, the pain, the loneliness, put all of that before him. This is the opportunity to do that, Okay. And as you're ready, if you're ready, you may take the bread and take the juice. If you're not a follower of Christ, this is not for you, but we do invite you to talk to God. That's what prayer is, by the way. It's nothing fancy. There's no formal words you need to use. There's no language you need to use. You can speak to God in your heart, in your soul, right here, right now. You can lay everything down before him.
And we invite you to come to him. If you have questions, we'd love to answer those after the service. Let me pray. Father, thank you for opportunity to be together. Uh, thank you for the story. Um, in many ways, for many of us, it feels like the fourth watch of the night in the middle of a storm, in a boat, unsure about how we're going to ever survive or get through this or how we're going to get to the other side. The fact is, is that, Jesus, you do see us, you know us, you're present, you're real. And God, you, do, you have rescued us by going to a cross, living a life we couldn't live, dying a death we should have died to save us, resurrecting, walking all over death itself, knowing that death is not the end. God, we, we pray that you would give us faith to be sustained, give us endurance. There's so much call in Scripture to endurance. Just keep going one foot in front of the other. I pray, God, that as we remember uh, the time for Christmas here, as we remember that you were, you were born, you came to be near us, you took on suffering, sin and death for us. May God, um, you give us faith and hope. And may we be able to share that, um, God, with people around us who don't have that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.